Is this more in number one? Put more in number two on the phone. Hello, my name is Will, and you're listening to Exploding Helicopter, the podcast that's got a million-dollar bounty on films where helicopters explode. In the 1980s, a new film genre was born, the buddy cop movie. Certainly the format had its antecedents in earlier movies, but it was during the millennium's penultimate decade that the formula was perfected. But after the success of 48 Hours and Lethal Weapon, filmmakers were forced to find new variations on the recipe. And it's one of those films that we're looking at on this show, where the part of the cop is replaced by a bounty hunter. So the film we're looking at on this show is Midnight Run. And given that we're talking about a film where two mismatched personalities are forced to bicker, then bond, my guest today couldn't be more perfect. With me once again is my good friend Dara. How you doing, buddy? Hello, mate. How are you today? Well, I'm all right. I'm a little bit under the weather, so... Uh, oh, you know, what's, what are you, what's happened to you? I've had a bit of a... I'm recovering from a bit of a virus, so uh, oh, virus. you're going to have to pick the slack up. I, you know, you're pretty, frankly lazy co-host on these things so uh you can it's gonna be a terrible show Will, if i'm gonna supposed to do the heavy lifting <laughs> well dory you're gonna have to uh put your uh, puny mr muscle type arms into uh into hard labor on this podcast because uh i need you today buddy okay mate these are these are 24 inch biceps i love you now anyway <laughs> Well, given that we're talking about buddy cop movies, which are all about sort of mismatched pairings, I kind of thought that uh, it might be interesting to kind of ask you about what is your sort of most unlikely sort of double act. So, uh, yeah, that's what I kind of thought I'd throw at you, Dara. Apart from this charade that we've got going on here, <laughs> this kind of how how on earth has this come into play? I have no idea. But. Out, out of our personal, uh, you know, vendetta against each other. I was just having a think and, you know, it got me thinking about another another big favourite in your life. We talked about Mila Jovovich on uh, uh, last week's episode. But uh, someone else that I know you're a big fan of, uh, Will, and that's uh, Phil Collins. <laughs> so, I think I know where you're going. Well, there's various directions you, you could go, go anywhere. This. I'm very well, excited. Okay, so keen music fans among us and the exploding helicopter community may be familiar with uh, Phil Collins' collaboration with Bone Thugs and Harmony, a uh, gangster rap act from Crenshaw in LA. Uh, is that is that where? Crenshaw is? I don't know. It's, they're from a, a deprived part of uh, the US and they teamed up with Phil Collins using a sample of his, uh, one of his tracks called Home, to basically he sang the riff in, in this song which they imaginatively called Home and Phil Collins is in the video and I I recommend anyone go and seek out this video because Phil Collins basically looks like a, sort of a, a stranded commuter that's just turned up <laughs> in one of their videos kind of looking around. This is towards the end, sort of latter stages of his career it's just the weirdest combination that the song is quite good it kind of works with their rap and his little little riff bit but uh you know phil collins has got form in this area because uh he's a beloved by the uh, african-american community in uh in the states you know they've done there was that album urban renewal where there was um, indeed rap acts would cover phil collins songs and there's a always... particularly good version of uh Susudio by old dirty bastard on that uh, <laughs> on that album there you go it's, it's what you think when you old dirty bastard phil collins you know so it's a long line of odd contributions that uh, phil collins has ended up and let's not forget phil collins is an actor having starred famously in buster and pretty much nothing else after that uh, was he in an episode of miami vice he might be right actually 
I mean, he always dressed in the 80s like he was in Miami Vice. So maybe that's that's why I've got that idea in my head. That's his whole career with his turned up sleeves. (laughs) Well, what I'm going to throw at you, I I stayed sort of more on the uh, film side of things. So I don't know if you've ever come across one of the strangest buddy cop movies that has uh, ever been made, which is uh, from 1996, I think, called Theodore Rex. Now, this film partners Whoopi Goldberg's no-nonsense cop with a dinosaur uh, and the pair have to this is in this is this film's taking place in a kind of imagined future where dinosaurs are still exist and can talk to other humans (laughs) and this uh the uh, cop and uh, t-rex team up in order to try and stop this conspiracy where you've got this kind of megalomaniac billionaire who's trying to send the world back to some sort of of, uh, Ice Age, and he's uh, he's killing off other dinosaurs uh, along the way. They film. So, hang on a second, Will, because you've you've raised a lot of questions for me. <laughs> this is a world where dinosaurs and humans interact with one another and can speak to each other. Is that correct? Yes. So it's taking place in a world that looks very much like our own at the moment, just right. with just with walking, talking dinosaurs in it. Why aren't the dinosaurs eating the humans? Because. I don't know. I can't. Uh, it's, a, it's a while <laughs> I think since I've fallen down that question number one here. <laughs> what is well, going on with this premise? Can you imagine that? that, that uh, well, I've watched the fr- film, Dara, and I still don't know what was going on. So, I mean, it is a deeply, deeply terrible movie. It's wow. uh, it's I think it's in the IMDb's worst 100 list of uh, movies. It is. It's that notoriously bad. I want to see this now. This this sounds amazing, at least for like five or ten minutes. Well, I think we've come up with a good couple of uh, odd couple pairings. As you say, none of those can rival uh, our own horrific union in this uh, in this podcast. <laughs> Bastardly union. Yeah. But uh, let's get this uh, let's get this show on the road and uh, let's get stuck into Midnight Road. Uh, Midnight Road. Let's get stuck into Midnight <laughs> Run. Let's listen to a vintage Don Lafontaine voice trailer. I love to travel by train. Oh, yeah? What do you think this is, a class trip? A tough ex-cop. Are you always this angry? A sensitive criminal. Oh, no, no, come on, come on. Cigarettes are killers. Why are we running away from the FBI? Because I got to bring it back myself, otherwise I won't get my money. They can't fly. They also suffer from acrophobia and claustrophobia. I'll tell you what, if you don't cooperate, you're going to suffer from fistophobia. They're seeing America the hard way. Why would you eat that? It doesn't taste good. At gunpoint. What did you do before you did this? What qualified you for this? He's gaining. Without getting it, he's flying. Of course he's gaining. Robert De Niro. It is truly in your best interest to just relax. I'm totally relaxed. Charles Grodin. Two dollars, that's all you're going to leave? That's 15%. That's 13%. These people depend on tips for a living. From the director of Beverly Hills Cop, Midnight Run. Midnight Run came out in 1988. Bounty hunter Jack Walsh is sent to find and return bail jumper and former mafia accountant Jonathan the Duke Marducus, but he's not the only one on the trail of the Duke. 
the fbi want him to appear as a witness in an important court case and his old mafia employers have put out a couple of hitman on his trail to bump him off before he can open his mouth what follows is an eventful cross-country trip as walsh and the duke make their way to la and on their long journey their initially fractious relationship blossoms into a strange kind of friendship there's hope for us yet, Dara. In the lead roles, we have uh, Robert De Niro and Charles Grodin. There's also an uh, excellent supporting cast here, including a whole host of super character actors. So we've got Yafet Koto, Joey Pants, Philip Baker Hall, Dennis Farina and John Ashton. Uh, Midnight Run was directed by Martin Brest, who also made Beverly Hills Cop, Scent of a Woman, and the notorious dud Gili. It was written by George Gallo, who went on to help create the 90s buddy cop favorite bad boys uh, the film has got a 7.6 rating on imdb and letterboxd critics reviews were fairly uh, favorable at the time uh, many acknowledged that while the material was unoriginal uh, the execution of it was very good and lifted it above its genre origins uh, the film also picked up a couple of golden globe nominations for best comedy and de niro for best performance there's never been a proper sequel but weirdly in 1994 there were three made for TV sequels with a whole bunch of different actors. So all that is by way of background. So Dara, what did you make of Midnight Run? It's a, such a good film, this film. It's, it's one that repeat viewings doesn't get old. It's, it's not many films that you can watch over and over again it's still funny it's very very 80s but it's almost like a greatest hits of the 80s so you've got your mismatch pairings you've got your uh, road trip element to it that that they're using a lot of these kind of films you've got the chase scenes you've got the various different bad guys all kind of trying to get to the you know pot of gold at the end which is Mardukas. everyone's got different reason to to need to to find him and get him oh it's just it's really nicely done it's funny there is surprising elements of pathos in there and for me obviously the what really makes this kind of film it isn't very original in terms of plot and you know it is a genre film but the chemistry between charles grodin and de niro is fantastic it is just that it makes the film and you know you kind of want to watch more you'd like to see i'd like to see a sequel with those two i'm sure it'd be equally equally charming they seem to have got all the different elements right and it's it's a it's a film that sort of stands the test of time well, I think you've definitely touched on one of this film's strongest aspects, and probably its its strongest aspect, which is the the two lead performances here, uh, because both De Niro and Grodin are absolutely fantastic in this film, and they principally are the kind of this film's biggest attraction. Um, they're both playing very strong characters in this movie. They're very well-written characters they're very well-rounded they have proper arcs in this in this movie and mm. both De Niro and Grodin absolutely their chemistry as you were saying Dara is absolutely fantastic in in this movie and um, it's a very well-structured movie like all of the there's various subplots in this movie and the they all knit together really really well all the minor characters have little arcs which start have a middle and then have an end and yeah. the kind of it's the strongly done yeah the different things that happen to them because it becomes a sort of planes trains and auto automobiles type sort of situation for this yeah. pair as they try to get from a to b but all of the different things that happen to them along the way feel like they were merited by the plot so it's a very well structured put together movie from from that perspective 
Yeah, it doesn't feel too shoehorned in, even though there's, you know, various different, you know, you've got the mobsters mm. trying to get hold of him. You've got the FBI. You've got the normal cops. It's all kind of, it, it's obviously completely outlandish, but it, it feels like it works. And there's kind of a warmth. Maybe because you've got some of a human element, you, you know, you, you see Grodin and De Niro slowly become friends, you know, get to understand each other a little bit more because they're stuck together, you know, in these kind of confined spaces. They've got no choice but to talk to each other, find out they actually have got a lot more in common than they first thought. You know, De Niro just thought he's just another someone trying to rip off, mm. uh, you know, uh, a mobster boss and try and get the money and he's donated the money to charity. They both actually turns out have a backstory because uh, uh, the mobster played by Farina's, you know, run. Um, De Niro out of Chicago where he was a policeman it's kind of like a redemption this is his chance to get him back and so it all it all it's just very nicely written and obviously with the performance kind of layered on top and you've got a great ensemble cast as well it's got all the elements for a great film what I really appreciated about the comedy in this movie is that a lot of the comedy in this film is character driven so the laughs don't necessarily come from people delivering punchlines they come from from having well-rounded characters behaving in interesting ways and that's where a lot of the the comedy comes from here yeah yes there's quite a lot of foul-mouthed insults in this movie but there's just as many comedic beats from character-driven moments and I kind of really appreciated that I mean I uh, comedy is a very uh, individual particular thing and I do find the that sort of machine gun punchline 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 type comedy i do find that a little bit wearing and uh, this type of comedy movie is definitely my the type of tone type of movie that i enjoy the most yeah i think I, in my research for this i was looking at a few interviews and apparently the director martin breast he um really held out for grodin to play one of the characters he wasn't a big box office draw but uh, they did a, a um, screen test together and they just had such great chemistry he thought that this is the film i want to make and originally i think paramount wanted to they wanted to stump up the money they wanted someone with a, a bigger profile who could sell the movie and he insisted and they actually eventually pulled the money and the film was made i think by universal in the end who um uh, the director had a relationship with so him sticking by his guns really was such a great mm. move because you couldn't imagine it would have been quite as good with di two different characters but it, they just blend together so well well it's interesting you mentioned that dara because uh in my in my research I, I came across some of the other names that were in the mix to play yeah. the the two lead roles in this movie so in the charles grodin roles some of the the names that were that were mentioned in that were uh, Robin Williams and yes. uh, Chevy Chase. Do you see the film working with either of those two in the in that role? Can you imagine Chevy Chase doing it? Actually, Chevy Chase is really... Chevy Chase I is think funny. he could have worked. Chevy Chase might have worked because he's quite... An, he, that annoying kind of aspect of it, that might have worked. And he can underplay. Yeah. Robin uh, Williams can't underplay. He's no, just going to that... be going... Well, actually, he can, actually. When he's doing dramatic stuff, he can underplay, but I just don't see him working in this. I think he would, you know, he'd be going full, full more. It would be, it would be, it'd be different, wouldn't it? I mean, the whole thing of this is, he's very, um, very dry, Grodin, very laconic, just con with just a look. There's a lovely scene um, where there, he's buying bus tickets, a bus ticket, and he hasn't got, De Niro hasn't got enough money because they've cancelled his card. And you just see, <laughs> I, I'm sure a lot of this wasn't scripted. And I, in fact, I know a lot of these scenes were improvised. And that scene where he's kind of, he's just looking at the cashier, kind of rolling his eyes and going, God, this guy, he's taking me into custody. He hasn't got enough money to buy a, a bus ticket. Just nice, lovely little subtle bits that you, 
it's just the art of acting and just the, the it's the light and shade to both of the characters that makes it work so well well i think you've you've actually brought up my favorite scene in the movie i think that bus ticket ah. scene where grodin doesn't have a line but he's just doing so much with absolutely nothing he's just creating laughs out of thin air and it is uh it's definitely my favorite uh scene in the movie he's a he's a he's an interesting actor charles Grodin, because i always remember him in films but i don't feel like he's done a lot of films well it's interesting you mentioned because i was looking at his cv and he worked very steadily through into the early mid 90s and then he then he essentially sort of disappeared for over 10 years and he's sort of back now you know he's done quite a few things in the last four or five years but there was a 10 15 year period where he did almost almost nothing and uh, are you sure I, he's still alive well uh, as i say he's <laughs> he's got recent acting credits so i'm assuming uh he he is because he's fabulous he's, he's so great to watch uh you know in those kind of roles I've got, I've got a funny feeling he did something with woody in a woody allen film he was in one of the woody allen films i remember him being really good in that can't remember which one but it's not just him you've got great supporting cast you've got john ashton who plays one of the other sort of hapless bounty hunters marlon in the film mm. people will know from beverly hills cop he was one of the it was is it judge reinhold's partner in beverly hills cop he was indeed yes dennis farina playing kind of the quintessential 80s italian mob <laughs> guy very menacing you know there's a lot of kind of fus and they're gonna bury you in under concrete or something like that he's perfect see it's funny because this is quite a funny film but you feel like not many characters are sort of playing it for laughs. It's mm. all kind of organically done, yes. isn't it? And I so, think that's that's going back to what we were talking about earlier. I think that's why I like the comedy in this movie, because it feels it feels organic rather than people delivering punchlines and gags. Exactly. So, I mean, credit to uh, George Gallo for it. You, you've got to say that's in. it's got to be in the script. And I think um, he works quite a lot with Martin Bress. When I was reading... Uh, no, they're interviewing De Niro. He was basically was trusting because he knew what would he felt that the director knew what would work for him and what would work for Grow did in terms of how to sort of pitch the humor and because I think we're going to talk about it in a in a minute. But this is supposedly De Niro's sort of foray into the comedy world. He's not he's not really playing a character that's altogether different from the ones he's played before. It's a slightly lighter and his interactions are slightly have a different outcome. But he's quite a cantankerous, brusque mm. character in this. He's not, you know, he's not a, he's got issues. and He's got demons. He's not a funny character. Yet he is sort of the way it's done and the interactions make a funny film. Yeah, well, let's let's dive into into that topic, because as you, as you just sort of said, this was kind of De Niro's first foray into comedy, I think, or, or definitely I've done some other films which sort of touch into that area before this but uh i think this King is a comedy but just before this, yeah but it's, that's a very different style of yeah. different style of movie and mm -hmm. um, this is much more i i think a sort of uh sort of standard type comedy film yeah. comedy type role that uh he's then subsequently gone on to do a lot of and uh it is really interesting to to look at this because i, I think that what you see here is de niro delivering a character rather than a caricature and i think in a lot of the kind of the roles that uh, the comedy roles that uh, de niro has done more recently i think he is playing a caricature whereas here he's actually playing a, a three-dimensional uh, three-dimensional character and it is it's just so good and it's so much better than in my opinion a lot of the comedy work that he's done in more recent years 
Yeah, he's done a lot of turkeys. Uh, <laughs> in terms of comedy, the things I can remember him doing which have been good, I think you would give him something like Analyze This. That's a decent film. He is playing a version of himself in that. Mm. I think that, you know, is a similar to this sort of film where it's, I don't think it's a lot of punchlines. It's a little bit more character driven and he's actually quite good in Meet the Parents. But I think in both of those, he's got a funny man to kind of bounce off, a but genuine funny mm. person. So you've got Jimmy Crystal in Analyze This and Ben Stiller, Meet the Parents. So he kind of plays himself with a little bit of comedy and you've got He's kind of the straight man, like he's kind of the straight man in this one. And he, he needs someone sort of a little bit funnier in order to bounce off because he's, he's done some awful things. What, he did uh, Dirty Grandpa. I don't know if you saw that with Zac Efron. I haven't. And I frankly am not going to go near that film. But uh, have, you, have uh, you seen it? I've seen bits of it and it's very unsophisticated. Frat rubbish, comedy. Basically. Frat comedy. Did you see Grudge Match with Stallone? I'm not sure. I feel like I have, but I, I, I'm not entirely sure. Yeah, it's not it's not great. I don't think Stallone is known mm. for his comedy chops as such. You kind of need they both you know, he needs someone really from the comedy background mm. or someone who can like, bring it out of him to make it work. I mean, he did do one good. He did was in a good comedy from the early nineties called Wag the Dog. Because apparently he was uh, after getting the critical plaudits for this film, suddenly wanting to go into comedy direction and was really serious about going for the role in Big that Tom Hanks eventually got. Really? Um, yeah, apparently. And uh, the studios actually went for Tom Hanks. They said it would work better. He might have been a bit too old to play. Mm. Cause I think he was in his mid 40s when he did Midnight Run. Yeah. But yeah, but they said no. They 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 went for Tom Hanks in that one. So is it sort I of, think we dodged uh, a bullet with that one. Yeah, I think there's a lot to be said for Midnight Run being a great film, but it also kind of spawned a monster. But what I did find interesting in this film was you do see the genesis in this film of or what I think of as Robert De Niro's comedy face, which is that sort of pained smile as if he's trying to sort of see the funny side of constipation. Yeah, I know. I know exactly <laughs> the face you're talking about. Yeah, I, I don't, it's a good one. I don't know if he, he did that in previous films. It's kind of like the kind of sneering... <laughs> I'm laughing, but you're a, you're a dick. That kind of <laughs> look, which works because that you know when when he's playing the tough guy. But um, I really enjoyed this film. I just uh, it sort of hits on many levels. It's very 80s. I, I like to think if they made this sort of film now, I don't think it would work. I just don't see how it would work. Why is that? Very well. I just don't know how you. I don't know. It's like it's something about films. That's why a lot of people like 80s films. It's something about the kind of chemistry of the 80s. Mm that make it work but whereas if you sort of transplant that into today you know what you know what i think it is i think it's the remove of time so i think when you go back and watch these films from the 80s because we're 30 years on from you know whatever it is that you're watching you you kind of make allowances for absurdities or stupidities within the plot yeah, maybe. because you kind of think oh well that was, that's the that, 80s that's the 80s and you're yeah. able to sort of relax and enjoy the movie more whereas if you saw something like that and it was made today you kind of think oh this is ridiculous i feel insulted how, yeah how is it that those two you know what why isn't someone tracking them or something like that how can they let uh you know someone who's wanted by the fbi after so easy yeah yes yeah, so maybe it's the artist you give them much more artistic license to kind of be outlandish and that way you, you relax and watch the film and enjoy it more well talking of the 80s there are a couple of things in this movie that i really enjoyed i'd be interested to know if uh if, if you picked up on them too and uh, you were enjoying them as much as i was which was the uh, i really enjoyed the the score in this movie uh, particularly uh -huh. that kind of 
pop bass sound that uh, crops up on quite a lot of the incidental uh, music. It's that kind of, that sort of, oh, it's a bit Lighten. like that sting that's used in Seinfeld. Uh, you kind yeah. of, that crops up on the uh, on the soundtrack of this. And I, I really enjoyed the the sax and uh, wailing guitars on uh, quite a few of the tracks in this uh, Yeah, soundtrack. this is such an 80s. Danny Elfman, if I'm not mistaken. It is indeed. Before he kind of got into more orchestral pieces, he, this is kind of very 80s kind of that. It's what it's the sound of white people doing black music for me. You, you know, they're trying to do that kind of you know funky stuff. It doesn't really work, but they've got you got your horns. It's like the whitest James Brown you've ever heard is is that. But it kind of works with this kind of you know the wailing guitars as they're going off and the squawking saxophones, and it's got it's upbeat and you know it it it, it kind of soundtracks the car chase very well. If I ever form a band, I'm going to call it White People Doing Black Music. <laughs> That was that would be that you'll be on six music, mate. No, definitely with a with. A I'd be in heavy. I'd like be on that. heavy rotation. I think with heavy a, rotation with an artist name like that. But uh, uh-huh. the other thing that I really enjoyed in this movie was uh, you mentioned the great Dennis uh, Farina in this movie, and uh, I was I, I was enthralled by the strange top that he was wearing in one <laughs> section of this film. It was basically <laughs> like half a shirt and half a jumper. So the top half was like a shirt. And then sort of about halfway down, it then sort of turned into a knitted jumper with sort of black and white diagonals on. And I was wow. just like, what on earth is what on earth is that? What was going on? Sounds very Miami Vice, that sort of thing. So it keeps you maybe keeps your top cool and keeps your stomach warm for those uh, occasions where that's needed. <laughs> I'll, um, I'll, uh, you can come back to me later on as to uh, Listen, what, I, I what, what those not, occasions I'm, exactly are. I'm not are, into textiles. But... What can I say? I don't know. Yeah. Okay. Well, the last thing I wanted to, to, to chat to you about was was the kind of relationship between sort of De Niro and Grodin in this movie because that's really at the at the heart of this movie. And at the beginning of the film, obviously, as we expect, you know, they are irritating the hell out of each other. But by the end, you know, their relationship has flipped. And did you? by that transformation in their relationship i did i mean it kind of they are at it for and that's the kind of comedy inverted commas in the movie the kind of odd couple and one you know grodin's kind of like a bit of a hypochondriac and he and you've got that conflicting against the nero's a bit of a thug he's not so not he's putting his brawn in front of his brain however i think that sort of the pivotal scene is the scene in the boxcar, I don't know if you remember, Will, when they're, mm. they're, they're obviously traveling from, you know, New York all the way down south and he, they have various different means of transport to get there and they end up kind of hitching a ride in a, a freight train and, and, um, Grodin tries to get away with him, get away from him and he clambers up, De Niro clambers up and gets into the boxcar and obviously confronts him and they're kind of sitting there and, um, that's the kind of scene where they kind of, he lets a bit more of himself go and he gets to understand a bit why he was, run out of chicago and why he wears a watch that's you know always slow because it's something his ex-wife gave to him apparently that scene was pretty much all improvised and grodin spent quite a few nights trying to think of ways he had to get he had to turn de niro's character from being sort of angry into mm. making him laugh and then that would break him into actually revealing a bit more about himself and it was all improvised he come up with like 10 different lines tried them with the members of the crew what would work tried them with de niro what would work and um apparently between takes it was almost like quite a few five six days until yeah. he went 
and that scene about him having sex with the chicken was completely <laughs> off apparently it was completely off the cuff and that's kind of what prompted kind of a so that kind of muse reaction and it worked and they kept it in the film and then that so a lot of these things you know happen by accent or maybe the director said look i want you to come up with mm. something to surprise him to try and make that and that and that organic feel probably a lot of those things happen because of this method that the film was made in a given um great actors sort of room to make uh you know to, to improvise yeah that's really uh that's really fascinating i hadn't uh seen that particular that particular story um about uh about how this film was was put together i mean i, I mean as for myself i kind of i kind of flip-flop a bit on on the kind of the change in relationship that they that they have uh, i'm not sure i quite buy it but i enjoy too much else about the film and i think the character's so good that I'm prepared to go along with it, even though I don't sort of quite get why, you know, even after all of the scrapes that they've been in, that, uh, you know, that either of them would be giving the other the time of day by the end of the movie. But um, I think I'm prepared to to give it a pass because of how much I enjoyed other aspects of the film. I know, I know, I know what you mean. They do quite a few horrible things to each other. I think by that point, if anything, you'd probably be even more distrustful of the other person because they're lying to each other and trying to get away from each other, etc. Obviously, the anyone who's seen the film, there are quite tender moments in the film. It's not all just car chases and silly comedy. There's a scene where he actually they stop off in Chicago and Grodin says that he should go and visit his ex-wife who he hasn't seen for 10 years and his daughter's there. And, it, you know, it's no, there's no laughs in that scene at all, but it really is that kind of pathos in the film about him seeing his daughter he hasn't seen for like six years and how much she's grown and how he regrets not being around. He managed to get all that out because he's such a good actor. So for them, you know, him playing it straight there actually works in the context of the film. I think what this film does very well, and I think what actually does make it work, is that it establishes both Grodin and De Niro as moral characters. So Grodin is playing this mafia accountant, but he's an unwitting mafia accountant. He didn't know that he was doing the books for the mob. And he has embezzled money from the mob in order to give it to charity. De Niro is somebody who's been forced to leave the police force. And as we find out later in the film, that was because he refused to, to take a bribe. And, mm -hmm. you know, it establishes them both as moral characters and so I think that does ultimately, I think, make this really helps make this film work and make their bond as characters believable. Because by the end of this, you know, that they would actually respect, you know, elements of the personality um, of, the, of one another of one another. Yeah, uh -huh, definitely. I think we're going to take a quick break now and uh, we're going to be right back and we're going to be looking at the exploding helicopter action. Do you like Movie podcast hosted by inebriated people That's Kai with the cracking voice and Heather's touched by evil One thinks he's Spider-Man, the other is a ninja It's the Man I Love Film Podcast, it's the MILFcast Hey everybody, I'm Kai And I'm Heather And we are the hosts of MILFcast, the Man I Love Films Podcast The unofficial, official podcast of com. This is the podcast where we like to talk about what we've been watching, talk about movies But mainly we just like to drink, be silly and play a whole bunch of games. So we think every other week you should grab a drink, snuggle up, and let us make sweet love to your ears. Otherwise, we'll make sweet love to your couch. So come and find us on iTunes. Just search for MILFcast. 
Okay, now we're looking at the exploding helicopter action. De Niro, Grodin and Ashton are trying to complete their journey in a car when they find themselves on the wrong end of machine gun fire. Uh, they're being fired at by mobbing forces who are on board a pursuing helicopter. The goons manage to force the car off the road. Grodin winds up in a nearby river, totally exposed to the hovering chopper. Just as the mob are about to finish off the job, De Niro takes careful aim at the copter's tail rotor. A couple of well-placed shots from his pistol causes the chopper to spin wildly out of control. It jackknifes around like a, a mechanical bucking bronco. It veers then too close to a cliff face and wham, it goes up like a Catherine wheel on Boffar Night. Dara, what did you make of the exploding helicopter action? Well, it's uh, I think it's a sort of an average, even exploding helicopter. Not too exciting, not too terrible. It feels a little bit tacked into the story, if I'm honest. It doesn't feel like an organic part of the story completely, although yeah, it's possible. The actual explosion itself is quite nice. It's a genuine, obviously they've exploded something on a hillside. However, it feels a little bit cut and paste because it jump cuts from the helicopter sort of spinning around as you very, very accurately see so like a bucking bronco and in the, in the rotor. So it's all bucking around, that looks good. And then next second you kind of see it you know smash against the hillside you don't kind of see the whole thing all in one go so it's kind of you can tell how they've done it it's not a genuine helicopter that's exploded well there was a slightly irritating thing about the that sort of spinning around section of the of the sort of helicopter's demise which was they slightly speed it up and it's very noticeable that they have slightly speeded ah, up right, the, okay. the helicopter's sort of spinning and it, it sort of took me out of the moment a little bit i don't I don't know if they really needed to do that, but it, it bugs me a little bit. But I think I'm a little bit warmer on this exploding helicopter than you. I, I actually thought this was this was pretty good. I thought that when it smashes into that cliff place, it really lingers on the explosion. And, you know, we get to see the full fiery demise of the fuselage of that particular helicopter and cuts back to a reaction shot from De Niro. But then we go back to the cliff face to see a bit more of the, the yeah. wreckage in flames. Yeah, it's not bad. It's a, it's a genuine... Exp they've obviously exploded something on the hillside. Yeah, it's not... Obviously, we see a lot of exploding helicopters. So in terms of that, it's not it's not the greatest one I've ever seen. But my favourite bit of that is the just bit before where De Niro is very calmly just aiming his single pistol gun at the rotor, not rushing around and firing off. If they made that film these days, these guys have Uzis and they'd be spraying the helicopter. <laughs> He's just got one guy, just waits, waits for his time, bang. Hits it, does the job done. That was the favourite bit for me. Yeah, I mean, I, I kind of know, I kind of know what you're saying overall. I mean, it is, you know, for hardened chopper fireball fanatics like ourselves, this is a this this is a sort of very meat and potatoes type. It of, is. Uh, it's five, it's a five out of ten. You know, maybe a six out of ten. No more, really. Yeah, there's nothing terribly innovative about it. There's nothing terribly amazing about the execution. It is good. It's, you know, it's above average, but. We're connoisseurs now, Dara. You know, we need to. Uh, you, you need to. You need to work hard if you're going to impress us. I know. What I mean, you know, we're, we're a bit sort of sad and dried up now. We've seen so many exploding <laughs> helicopters. There's nothing. You know, it's like seeing, you know, Valhalla or heaven every single day. You know, nothing will impress you. Once you've seen a helicopter that's falling between an ice rink with the Jean-Claude Van Damme hanging off one of the struts, <laughs> you, what else? You, where do you go from there? 
Well, you're talking about the the great uh, '90s action movie Sudden Death there, which does have one of the one of the great helicopter explosions in. But you know, the, Dara, I think this is this is the issue: is that you know you're you're such a, a diva that you won't watch. You know, you you only want to watch quality films, and often it's in the the worst films that you get the best exploding helicopters. With Ultraviolet, one of your favourite movies of recent years, being a prime example. Well, so this is this is my logic. So this is the invert. We, you know, we should do like some sort of infographic for this podcast. So it's the the quality of the exploding helicopters almost inversely proportional to the the mm. the greatness of the film. By and large, terrible films tend to have good exploding helicopters, and great films is almost an afterthought. So Dara, I mean, you know, where does where does this leave us? Are you prepared? to kind of wade through some of the 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 muck on the you know the floor of cinema history in order to kind of see some good exploding helicopters or do you want to sort of you know do you want to hold your nose and only only watch the the finer works of film and only see average types of uh, helicopter explosions where where do i go next with you dara good film average helicopter every time (laughs) i'm sorry i'm sorry but that's that's my rule Okay, well, I will uh, I will take that away with me. Okay, I think it's uh, time to wrap this mother up. Dara, thanks for joining me once again. Yeah, it's been great. If you don't shut up, you're going to suffer from fistophobia. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's a good thing we're recording this remotely, so I don't have to. Uh, I don't have to worry. Next, I'll, I'll be worrying about that next time I see you in person. But yeah, uh, you know, you I've, seen your, I've seen your forearms. I probably. I probably won't even won't even know if you've hit me, so uh, you know I'm not too worried. But uh... this is slandering my good name. God damn it! <laughs> okay, as always, don't forget to check out the Exploding Helicopter website. We'd love it if you can see it in your heart to give us a shout out on Twitter, Facebook, or leave us a review on iTunes. It'd really help us out. We'll be back soon. But until then, as always, keep watching the skies for those exploding helicopters. <laughs> This podcast is a proud member of the Lamb Podcasting Network. Find the network at largeassmovieblogs.com. Did you ever have sex with an animal, Jack? Remember those chickens around the Indian reservation? There's some good-looking chickens there, Jack. You know, between us. Yeah, a couple there might have taken a shot at. (laughs) What's with you in that watch? What is it with the watch? You told me when you get to know me better, you told me about your your feelings for chickens. I mean, how, how private could the watch be? What's the big secret?